You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. We are gathered here as advisors, as scientists. The kind of place we expect a ghost to like to wander around. Hey, we all know we're gonna die, baby. I'll help you. I'm something of a witch. Welcome to Mission Spooky, folks. Casey couldn't be here for this one, so I'm bringing you a solo history-based episode honoring one of my favorite African American women, Harriet Tubman. And there'll be the story of Belmont Mansion, its ties to the Underground Railroad, and the possible haunting there. There is no doubt that Harriet had a huge impact on our local history. As a matter of fact, the first historical black person that I was introduced to as a child was Harriet Tubman. I kind of became completely enamored with her. I mean, wait until I tell you some of the incredible things this woman did. But don't worry, Mom and Dad, because this episode is 100% family-friendly. So buckle up, everyone. We're going on the Underground Railroad. Of course, before we get going, I'll remind our audience that I lived in the South for 20 years. So the history that I'm about to discuss concerning Southern oppression of Black people is just that. It is the history. If you're from the South now and you find yourself getting defensive about some of this history, then you should think hard about what it is that's making you angry. The South is a beautiful place and I have many friends still there. But it's time for all of us to realize that what happened in the past is directly affecting the future. I'd also remind our listeners that I was educated at a Southern university, University of North Carolina to be exact, and much of what I'm telling you today are things that I learned from classes on history of the South from Southern teachers. So please don't try to come at me with, I learned revisionist, quote, Northern history, because that is just not the case. I'll take a moment to remind you of a couple of things that set the tone of history up to this point. While this country was fighting for its freedom from tyranny, only seven of our founding fathers didn't own slaves. The fact that this country couldn't decide to abolish slavery at the beginning of its own creation speaks volumes and is representative of the idea it can wait until later. How can we keep asking people to wait for justice? We've all waited long enough. Let's talk about Harriet Tubman, because without her, there would have been no Underground Railroad and the historic places that I'm talking about today. Harriet was born into slavery in Maryland in 1822. Her given name was Araminta Ross. She was rented. Yes, that's right. In case you were not aware, slaves could be rented out to perform different tasks at other farms. She was rented out to another farm as a nursemaid when she was a child. Every time the infant cried, she would be whipped for it, leaving her with physical and emotional scarring. When she was 12, she came between a fugitive slave and a master who was throwing a heavy weight at him. For her troubles, the weight came down on her head and broke her skull. She suffered from dizziness, pain, and hypersomnia for the rest of her life. Her injuries made her unfit to be rented out or sold to other slavers, and it also made her inconspicuous. In 1840, her father was set free. She found out that her owners had actually freed her whole family through their last will and testament, but new owners stepped in and refused to adhere to the will. So, even if a Southerner freed their slaves through legal means, others could come in and take you because, you know, what are you going to do about it? Harriet married a free black man, John Tubman, in 1844, but the marriage wasn't good, and John threatened to sell her further south. 
1849, she escaped to Philadelphia and became a housemaid, but she wasn't satisfied with just her alone being free. She returned to Maryland shortly after to help family and friends escape. Eventually, she guided many slaves to freedom in daring nighttime runs shrouded in complete secrecy, known as the Underground Railroad. Fun fact, she never lost anyone traveling on the Underground Railroad. Philadelphia and Bucks County became an epicenter for safely transporting and housing former slaves in the Underground Railroad. Just as we are today, Philadelphia was a sanctuary city. There were also many allies who tried to help by getting around the laws of the time and free slaves through alternative legal means, and we'll be talking about one of those situations in a bit here. Harriet was an amazing and intelligent woman. How she transported blacks from the South was ingenious. She only traveled during the winter. People stayed inside their homes in the winter. The nights were longer and darker, so they were less likely to be seen and caught. Once she made contact with escaping slaves, they would start their journey on Saturday nights because the newspapers wouldn't report their escape until Monday morning, giving her an extra night of travel before word ever got out. She used songs called spirituals and would change the words to let escapees know if it was safe to go forward or stay back because of danger. There were several famous conductors on the Underground Railroad, one being African-American William Still who was often referred to as the father of the Underground Railroad, still was part of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society made of blacks and whites who opposed slavery. His office was located in Philadelphia. He was a successful businessman and historian who documented detailed information on escaped slaves that he helped move into freedom. This not only preserved the stories of what it was like to live as a slave and escape, but the information helped reunite families who had been separated. Still knew that hardship personally. He was born free, but his own mother had to leave two of her children behind in order to escape, and that is fleshed out in his book called The Underground Railroad Records. I know Northerners like to think they were extremely helpful in enabling slaves from the South to escape North. Generally speaking, this is true. But here is where we have to pause for just a moment on Harriet's story to discuss the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. The act directly impacted both Harriet and white allies in the North. It forced Harriet to move freed slaves farther north into Canada. The act was a controversial move by the federal government and was not as a whole well received by northern states. It was seen as giving in to southern wants and, quote, needs and adversely affected slaves escaping to the north. After all, it was part of the Compromise of 1850 in which we see the northern states attempting to appease the southerners and keep them from seceding. Southern politicians exacerbated the issue by exaggerating the number of people escaping enslavement and directly blamed northern interference with southern, quote, property rights. So rather than free human beings from slavery, the South demanded that the North concede certain, quote, rights so they would not secede from the Union. Basically, the same kinds of folks complaining about, basically, some of the same kinds of folks who are complaining about, quote, looting property during the Black Lives Matters movements are the same people who are literally threatening the newly formed United States with leaving the Union because they wanted to own human beings, which they equated to property. And the threat of secession at the time was taken very seriously. So the federal government, overreaching and stepping into states' rights, 
you know, the rights that are so important. When you're only talking about anything other than saving people's lives, they decided this act would abolish slaves from escaping north and thus the Union could stay together. So what was the act exactly? Well, if you were a black slave and you had been free for years in the north, all it would take was one person to claim that they owned you, and that was it. You were back to being a slave. Since a suspected slave was not eligible for a trial, the law resulted in kidnapping and conscription of free blacks into slavery. As suspected fugitive slaves had no rights in court and could not defend themselves against accusations. If all of this sounds familiar, it's because we're still fighting this stuff today. For example, murder by police officers is a sentence without a trial and without a jury. And I'd like to point out a few other things here. Historical facts, if you will, that are mostly overlooked in our school history books, depending on what state you live in. One, this act is in the middle of what we call the events leading to the Civil War. So when someone tries to tell you that the Civil War wasn't about slavery, they are historically incorrect. I've often heard this conflict referred to as the War of Northern Aggression. I'm sorry, the War of Northern Aggression by people who just don't want to admit that their ancestors were directly involved with oppression of an entire people. Hey, listen, I just recently found out that one of my ancestors was a straight up colonizer. It is what it is. You got to live with it. You got to change your attitude and move on. Hopefully you're changing your attitude for the best. Another fact city police officers were used to round up free slaves in the north after the act was put into law. An example of a warning that was posted by white allies reads, Caution, colored people of Boston, one and all you are hereby respectfully cautioned and advised not to converse with the watchmen and police officers of Boston. For since the recent order of the mayor and aldermen, they are empowered to act as kidnappers and slave catchers, and they have already been actually employed in kidnapping and catching and keeping slaves. Therefore, if you value your liberty and the welfare of the fugitives among you, shun them in every possible manner as so many hounds on the track of the most unfortunate of your race. Keep a sharp eye out for kidnappers and keep a top eye open. That is from April 24th, 1851. So yes, folks, even though most northern states were opposed to slavery, the police in those states were employed in the capture of those who, for all intents and purposes, were already free. Society's current feelings on police and police brutality run extremely and historically deep. One interesting and positive fact was that the act did the complete opposite of what the South wanted. Especially in Philadelphia where you once had northerners who were not that interested in what happened to freed slaves one way or another, they now had, they now had to face it in their streets daily. And no, white northerners were not siding with police or with their mayors or with their federal government. Instead, this act bolstered white allies and some were quite feisty about it. Many abolitionists openly defied the law. Reverend Luther Lee, pastor of the Wesleyan Methodist Church of Syracuse, New York, wrote in 1855, quote, I never would obey it. I had assisted 30 slaves to escape to Canada during the last month. If the authorities wanted anything of me, my residence was at 39 Onondaga Street. I would admit that, and they could take me and lock me up in the penitentiary on the hill. But if they did such a foolish thing as that, I had friends enough on the Onondaga County to level it to the ground before the next morning. 
End quote. Yeah, that's a straight up Iron Man type maneuver right there. Come and get me. This is my address. Another example was in Pittsburgh, where abolitionists organized groups whose purpose was the seizure and release of any slave passing through the city. Of course, there were Northerners who didn't oppose the act. And guess who they were? Those were wealthy business owners who had formed the Union Safety Committee. That sounds really nice, doesn't it? Because they didn't want to lose money with Southern businesses. So money and property before the lives of people. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? And folks, this isn't some conspiracy. You can Google this stuff right now. You can read it on Wikipedia or any book that isn't censored in an attempt to rewrite history. And all of this is why I say it's so important to learn your history. There's one more act that follows this one. It's called the Confiscation Act, which was passed by Congress at the beginning of the Civil War. Its main purpose was to free slaves still held by Confederate forces in the South. Slavery was an important issue going into the Civil War, so much so that the Union passed an act specifically to free slaves during the war. And here's where we're going to pick back up with Harriet. At the start of the Civil War, she now had her hands untied as far as transporting free slaves into the North. She no longer had to get them all the way to Canada. And this is where we get to talk about how tough this lady really was. Harriet knew what a win for the North meant for slaves, that they had a better chance of becoming free. So she joined the Union cause. She became a fixture at Port Royal, South Carolina, helping fugitive slaves. She acted as a nurse as well, using local plants in her remedies for such things as dysentery. She also helped those who had smallpox, never getting it herself, which only added to the belief that she was blessed by God. At this point, she was receiving food rations as if she were any other soldier in the Union. In late 1863, she became the first woman to lead an armed assault in the Civil War. I mean, how cool is that? She was no stranger to using a gun. She'd carried a revolver with her when she was working the Underground Railroad. One story says that she turned the weapon on an escaped slave at least one time. You see, he wanted to turn back, and she explained to him that turning back could mean a death sentence for the rest of the fugitives. Holding the revolver in his face, she gave him a choice. Go forward to Canada, or die right here. Uh, he decided to join her in Canada. <laughs> it's a good choice. Harriet did some amazing things during this particular raid, but I'm going to save that story for another time, so we can bring things back around to Philadelphia and another story of a freed slave and now supposedly haunted house that she once lived in. And this is Belmont Mansion. It was the family home of the Peters, dating back to 1742, when the land was purchased from, you guessed it, the Penn family. William Peters was a lawyer and a management agent for the Penn family. The property was passed to Judge Richard Peters, who had an impressive list of accomplishments and was also the first non-Quaker to become a member of the Pennsylvania Society for Abolition of Slavery. Belmont is the oldest Palladian-style mansion in the country, 360 years old. Judge Peters was an abolitionist, and so this ties in with what we were discussing earlier concerning the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and how it made things twice as difficult for freed slaves. One way that white abolitionists tried to get around the legalities of the act was to legally purchase slaves and allow them to work in an indentured servitude situation for a limited time usually no more than four years. That way they were legitimately working their way towards freedom 
and were less likely to have their freedom come into question. Now, this may sound just as terrible, but think of it this way. You're a rich white guy, and you can purchase slaves from the South, which means that you now have paperwork for each purchase you've made. And since the Southerners were all about, quote, property rights, none of them should have been able to refute that paperwork. A sale was a sale. Then the slaves would be legally transferred to the abolitionists, where they would work in homes as housekeepers, gardeners, etc. And, most importantly, they would learn how to read and write, something their former masters definitely didn't want them to know. Their service was then rewarded with freedom and paperwork saying as such, and this would become extremely important when the North was faced with the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. One of the ways a free black person could stay out of the clutches of the police or bounty hunters was to have correct paperwork. And it helped more if a prominent white man was also backing that evidence up with his own original, quote, invoice of purchase. Insane, right? But at the time, it was the legal go-around that helped keep free black people free. I want to be thorough when it comes to speaking on indentured servitude in the U.S., 96% of Englishmen entering Virginia during colonialism were indentured servants. The North also had indentured servitude, and during the same time period, that number is only 2% of Englishmen. Indentured servants came here to work on plantations for a specific amount of time. It helped them to get to the New World with almost no money in their pockets. But indentured servants were problematic. They were tied to one property only. They were only working for a specific amount of time before moving on to build a farm of their own, and they were more expensive than a black slave. So it could be said that indentured servitude led to increased need for slavery and that southern plantations were broken and without evolving, they were doomed to fail. Back to Philly and Judge Peters. In 1811, Peters purchased Cornelia Wells and her daughter from Thomas Morgan. Peters was a man that knew exactly how to manipulate the law in favor of black people. Her indenture was on record in Blockley Township, and her papers were all in order. Judge Peters knew that bounty hunters were always on the lookout to nab a black person north of the Mason-Dixon, whether they were legally freed or not. Again, let that sink in. Even if you had done everything right and escaped north through legal means, there were men who were hired by Southerners to recapture and bring you back into slavery. And I say recapture, but as I just said, you could be legally freed and then put back into slavery. Judge Peters also opposed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1792, the predecessor of the 1850 Act. Again, he knew exactly how to manipulate the law in order to keep black people free. Before I tell you the story of Cornelia, a word about this one, because it's going to sound very much like a, quote, white savior story. And we are by no means suggesting that this happy story was the case for all black folks trying to escape oppression. It just so happens that Cornelia had a really great guy backing her up. So Cornelia became an important part of the household as Richard's wife had passed away, leaving his daughter to manage this huge estate. And not that Richard wasn't interested in working at home. He was a judge for the United States District Court, 
He was an abolitionist working with prominent men to get laws changed. And more interesting, he had converted some of the estate to a working model farm to promote scientific agriculture because he was also an environmental scientist. So Cornelia wound up helping Peter's daughter, Sally, so much so that Sally gave her an additional $30 after she had completed her three-year indentureship. Fun fact, 30 bucks had about as much buying power today as $600, which was a very nice, quote, going away present, if you will. But Cornelia didn't go away. She was then hired full-time to continue her service with the Peters family. She was paid $15 every three months. And when her daughter Jane became old enough, she too received pay for her work at the house. Now, this is technically below average for hourly wages of an unskilled worker at the time, but Cornelia lived in the house. She did not have to pay rent or food. So taking that into account, the wages were fairly decent. Her story says that she eventually moved into the cottage house near the river that was built on the property by the former owners of the land. So now not only was she earning her own way, but she and her daughter had their own house to live in too. She tells of kids giving her a few extra pennies to go dig for worms from the garden to use in fishing, how Judge Peters converted the surrounding land into orchards, and how she began a small tavern and entertained guests who came to see the gardens with her homemade horse-shaped ginger cakes and spruce beer. She was a true entrepreneur. So I did promise you some spookiness. There are no stories of Cornelia haunting the area, but Belmont Mansion is supposedly haunted by Judge Peters himself. And to get to that, we need to talk about how the mansion became a museum for the Underground Railroad. In 1986, the Belmont Mansion was on the city's demolition list. That's when Audrey Johnson Thornton founded the American Women's Heritage Society. That's an African-American women's organization dedicated to restoring and maintaining Belmont Mansion and Fairmont Park. Under her leadership, $3 million was raised to save and renovate the mansion. She assembled Temple University graduate students to research the structure's past. And what the team found was that the mansion had been a stop on the Underground Railroad, which meant that it was an important chapter in African-American history in Philadelphia. Something else was discovered when Olivia Butler came to the mansion to do her dissertation on the structure in 1999. She was instrumental in uncovering that Richard's son, Richard Jr., was part of the design team that designed the Philadelphia-Columbia Railroad that went through Fairmont Park. It is believed that Richard Peters Jr. deliberately created a way for the train to slow down so that escaped slaves could jump to safety and be met with a conductor of the Underground Railroad. I have to say, that's pretty cool, very ingenious, and you should look it up online and see the photographs that go with how the train would have to slow down, come around a curve. It seems like it was sort of ridiculous, as in it wasn't necessary, so it's really obvious what they were trying to do, which is pretty cool. Since the mansion has been reinvigorated, the ghost of the judge has been felt in various parts of the house. And it's interesting to note that the museum also has a docent program that is partnered with the Global Leadership Academy, where students can attend a six-week program at the mansion. It makes me wonder if the residual energy of the judge hangs around because he's happy to see his home being used to further education of young Black women. So to wrap this up, uh, I just want to mention that unfortunately we lost Audrey Thornton Johnson at the age of 93. But her legacy lives on in the work she accomplished at Belmont and her other volunteerism, including the African-American Chamber of Commerce, 
serving on Lincoln University's Board of Trustees, the Mayor's Commission for Women, and working with the Urban League of Philadelphia and the Philadelphia Orchestra's Cultural Diversity Initiative. She was truly an amazing woman. Another amazing woman is Naomi Nelson, who is currently the curator and consultant for the Underground Railroad Museum. And if you want to give to the museum, we'll provide all of that info in our show notes and on Instagram. Folks, I hope you enjoyed a nice little trip down history lane. It's a shame JC couldn't be here. He really wanted to be, but scheduling conflicts. So it is what it is. Just remember, stay spooky and don't die. But if you do, contact us any way you'd like to this week. Bye.